0: If you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 42. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand and one of our ushers or greetings will be happy to drop one into your lap. Genesis 42, we're going to pick up in verse 25. Uh, If you're new with us, we've been going through the book of Genesis verse by verse, and here we are 42 and a half chapters in, and specifically, we are in the story of Joseph. And to give you a recap of where we are, Joseph is one of the 12 sons of Jacob, who is also renamed Israel, part of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Joseph, as a young man, is his father's favorite, but is hated most among his older brothers. And his older brothers sell him into slavery for money. Joseph ends up in the captain of the Egyptian guard's house named Potiphar, where he rises to power within Potiphar's house for being a man of integrity and full of wisdom and the spirit of the Lord. And then Joseph is wrongfully accused of trying to rape Potiphar's wife. He's unjustly thrown into prison where he spends several years now running the prison. And he meets Pharaoh, king of Egypt's chief cupbearer and chief baker and interprets dreams that they've had. And one day, Pharaoh has a dream, and when the cupbearer is in the presence of Pharaoh, he goes, oh my goodness, I've forgotten, there's this guy in prison, his name is Joseph, we need to get him in here so that he can interpret your dream, O king. And Joseph is brought from from the prison to the palace and interprets the king of Egypt, Pharaoh's dream. And in a moment, Joseph goes from prison to second in command in the most powerful kingdom in the world at that time. And the reason Pharaoh puts him in that position is because there was no man who had wisdom. There was no man who had insight like Joseph. And Joseph knows there's going to be seven years of a plentiful harvest of grain in which Joseph stores up immeasurable amounts of grain. But there will also be seven years of severe famine that not only impact Egypt, but impact the whole world. And Joseph is put in charge of managing the grain for the known world second in command to only Pharaoh. And last week we saw that there is no grain in the land of Canaan, where Joseph's brothers and his father Jacob live. They all think that he's dead. And because they have no grain, 10 of his brothers go up to Egypt to buy grain. And who do they come before? Joseph. And they bow their knee to Joseph. Just as when he was a teenager, he dreamed that they would. And although Joseph recognizes his brothers, they do not recognize him. And he speaks harshly to them. He accuses them of being spies. But we saw that Joseph had a special plan of reconciliation. A patient plan to bring his family into a safe place where they would have food. Where they could have longevity and where he could protect them. And last week, Pastor Dave talked about the four parts of this patient plan of reconciliation. The first one is that Joseph was slow to speak and quick to listen. Uh, If you had found your 10 brothers who had betrayed you and sold you for a couple of bucks, how would you respond when you first saw them? (laughs) Ha ha! Who's wearing the signet ring now, homie? (laughs) Now I can get my payback. Now I can get my revenge. But instead, Joseph is slow to speak and he listens as he asks questions. Is your father still alive? Tell me about the family that you come from. Tell me about the land that you come from. And he takes time to listen to them in order to learn about them. What phenomenal principles for us in our own relationship. Secondly, Joseph is other-centered. His patient plan of reconciliation is not to elevate himself. It's for the purpose of reconciling his family to where they need to be, which is with him, where they can be provided for. He's other-centered in that he doesn't want to justify or seek vengeance for himself, but instead seeks the provision of his family who is in need. Thirdly, that plan of reconciliation has realistic expectations. Uh, Sometimes when we want to reconcile with somebody, we hope that it takes how long? Like 20 minutes, that would be great. Or one session of counseling, or one email, or one text. And realistically, we should understand that reconciliation is usually a long process. Because if there are deep wounds and much trust that has been broken, reconciliation takes time, it takes wisdom, it takes knowing how close to get and when to be at a distance. How much to offer and when to pull back. And Joseph employs this beautifully as he establishes this plan of reconciliation with his family. And then lastly, this patient plan of reconciliation stays focused on reconciliation. Joseph doesn't let it become about his family worshipping him. It doesn't he doesn't let it become about money. He doesn't let it become about vengeance. He stays focused on the plan of reconciling relationships that have been broken. And church family, may I encourage you, what Joseph is revealing to us in chapter after chapter is just a small sliver of what Jesus Christ is and what he's done in his plan of reconciliation for us. Joseph is a prefigure, an archetype, a foreshadow of the Savior Jesus Christ, who is to come. And as we dive back into the story today, we have to remember, Joseph has kept one of the brothers, Simeon. He's kept Simeon and bound him and thrown him into prison. And he's told the other brothers, since you said you were honest men, if you are, go back home, get the younger brother that you say you have, Benjamin. Bring him back to me and I will return Simeon to you and you can trade in the land. Joseph is doing hard things in this plan of reconciliation for the purpose of building character in his brothers and reconciling a family that has been broken. And this is not just any family, is it? What family is this, by the way? This is the nation of Israel. If they starve to death, the promise of the Messiah is finished. God is using Joseph to remain faithful to his promise Despite the sinfulness of Jacob and Joseph's brothers. So you ready to jump in? Genesis chapter 42, beginning in verse 25. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their, meaning his 10 brothers, or actually nine brothers since Simeon is in prison, to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. A tremendous show of grace by Joseph. Uh, Last week, we looked at how forgiveness precedes reconciliation. Well, grace also precedes reconciliation. Grace is undeserved kindness, unmerited favor. It means that it's undeserved. It means that you can't do anything to earn it. It's simply given as a gift. And Joseph gives a gift to his brothers who did what to him? Who sold him into slavery. Because they didn't like him. And then they took his coat, which was the prized possession his father had given, tore it into pieces, dipped it in animal blood, returned back to Jacob and said, Does this belong to your favorite son? Do you see the wickedness of these men? And what does Joseph do for them? He gives them grace. He gives them grace we see that he provides this unmerited favor by he fills their sacks with grain, which means this. These weren't small sacks. These were sacks that were meant to keep the entire family of Jacob alive for probably about a year's time. He gave them a year's worth of grain for roughly 70 people. It was a significant gift that he provided. And we know it was a gift because what did Joseph do with the money that they tried to pay with it? He put it in their sacks. He does this quietly. He doesn't want them to know right away. And the scripture is not explicit in this. But here's what we know about Joseph. He was a man of integrity. Which means that if he didn't allow his brothers to pay, who paid for the grain? Probably Joseph. Because Joseph was still a man under authority and he respected Pharaoh and he respected the position that God had placed him in. And so to just simply give it out for free would have been taking advantage of Pharaoh and of God. And instead, Joseph returns their money and pays for it himself. What a picture of what Christ has done for us. We could never earn or deserve or somehow Gather up enough strength or gifting to get God's grace so that we could be on his team. Instead, while we were still wretched and dead in our sins, following the inclinations of our flesh, following the passionate desires of our members, God gave us his grace. Because grace precedes reconciliation. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 on your screen. Read this all with one loud voice. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Grace is a what from God? It is a gift. You cannot earn it. You cannot deserve it. He gives it freely. And Joseph, modeling who Christ is, does the same Now, think about this in your own salvation. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, when in the process of you becoming a follower of Jesus did He give you grace? After salvation, when did He give you grace? When we were dead in our sins, when we were living life the way that we wanted to live our life. I can remember in my own life, I knew the truth. I got the privilege of growing up in church, I had Christian parents. And I lived life selfishly. I did it my way for me. And it was only by God's grace that he allowed me to see the error of my ways, the foolishness of my sin. And he even gave me so much grace that I came to the end of myself going, I live a joyless and purposeless life as I continue to pursue my own dreams not caring what God wants for me. That's his grace. Not my intelligence, not me figuring it out. It's by his grace that I came to that point and went, Jesus, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. That's by his grace. Why, why would Joseph do this? Why would he fill their sacks with grain? Why would he return their money? It even says he goes so far as to provide provisions for the, the, the donkey ride home. Why does he do this? What's his motivating factor? What's at the root? He loves them. Loves who? The brothers who sold him into slavery? Who tricked their dad? Who left them for dead? Who never came looking for him? Those brothers? Man. Amazing. And if God pursues people like that, then he pursues people like me and like you. And it's out of the foundation of his love, which has nothing to do with anything that you've done, and has everything to do with what he's done through his son, that calls you to himself. Joseph is an incredible prefigure of who Jesus is. Both grace and love precede reconciliation. Look at Romans 5.8. Many of you know this well. Let's read it all together. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When did Christ die for us? Love precedes reconciliation. If you have broken relationships in your life, which most of us do because we live in a very imperfect world and we are very imperfect people. It can be small areas that need reconciliation and it can be mountains that seem like they need to be reconciled. But know this, forgiveness, grace, and love precede reconciliation. This is modeled to us through Christ Jesus who called us into that plan of reconciliation. And if Christ has called us into that plan, what is our role in restoring relationships with others? To do the same. Forgiveness, grace, and love precede reconciliation. And that's made possible, not because we're good people, but because what Christ has done for us, we now are empowered to do for others through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? That's one verse. (laughs) We'll go faster. Verse 26. So they, the brothers, loaded their donkeys with grain and departed from there. But as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money and there it was in the mouth of his sack. So he said to his brothers, my money has been restored and there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them and they were afraid, saying to one another, what is this that God has done to us? We laugh at this because how many of you are like, if I got my money back? what would we be doing? Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. This is amazing. Why do the brothers not have this reaction? Why are they not praising God? Why are they afraid in their hearts and it says that their hearts fail them? What's caused them to see this in a skewed understanding? Guilt. Last week, we looked at guilt as a heavy burden. And we'll take it a step further this week to look at guilt hinders us from receiving God's grace. Guilt hinders us from receiving God's grace. What does that look like in real life? Here's what it looks like. When we feel guilty and we don't believe that Christ's death on the cross, his blood shed for us, his resurrection power is enough to forgive us, we spend our life trying to make up for the wrong things that we do. Some call it penance. And there is no amount of good work or good things that we could ever do to pay the penalty that we deserve because of our sin. And with a guilty conscience, even the blessings that God provides can look like curses. And do you not see what God has done for Jacob and his family? They come and imagine how costly grain was. There's no food in the known world except in Egypt because of what God has done through Joseph. You think gas prices are expensive? Can you imagine what the grain cost would have been? They have to bring inordinate amounts of money to pay for this grain. And God does what for them? Restores it, gives it back. And the first thing they go is, God is after us. (laughs) He, oh, he knows. He knows what? He knows their sin. He knows what they did to Joseph. And yet here's what's interesting. Joseph has forgiven them already because forgiveness precedes reconciliation. And he's shown them grace and love because grace and love precede reconciliation. But because of their guilt and unrepentant sin in which they have not confessed to God or to Jacob, what they have done, they are guilt ridden. They are filled with shame. And at every corner, when something goes bad in their life or something doesn't go according to plan, the first thought that pops into their head is what? God is against me. May I encourage you? Nothing could be further from the truth. If it was about your behavior that caused God to be favorable to you, we would all be doomed. But instead, because of his forgiveness, his grace, and his love, which has preceded reconciliation, may I encourage you that God is for you. He is not against you. He has plans to prosper your life, to bless you, to give you an abundant life. It's what he's been doing throughout Genesis. Jacob makes some bonehead moves, doesn't he? To the point where sometimes we're like, how is Jacob God's man? Like, how is this guy, the patriarch of Israel? And that's the beauty of these stories is it reveals that a man like Jacob who is faulty and sinful and lacking in character got this patient in his pursuit to grow his character and to wait patiently as there's reconciliation. May we not frustrate the grace that God wants to give us by not repenting of our sin but instead by holding on to sinful things that we've done, keeping them secret, not bringing them before the Lord, not reconciling with others. If we do that, we will have the heavy burden of guilt, which causes us not to be able to receive God's grace. And you can easily find yourself trying to work for God's love instead of simply receiving it as the free gift that he gives it to us with. Their first thought. God is against us. What has he done to us? And God's like, I'll give you all your money back so that you can come back and do what? Buy more. Verse 29. Then they went to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan and told him all that had happened to them, saying, the man who is Lord of the land roughly spoke to us. And took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, We are honest men, we are not spies. Uh, What's humorous about this? Honest Honest men! (laughs) Honest men! We laugh at this, but then I have to look at my own life and go, How often do I think I'm a pretty good person? I'm a pretty amazing dad. I'm probably the best husband. not true they're not honest men no more than i'm an amazing dad i'm a sinner saved by grace redeemed by love given forgiveness and mercy because god sent his son jesus christ and for them to call themselves honest men caused joseph to test their character To see if they had changed. To see if there was something true in them. And the boys continue, or these men, Jacob's sons, continue to tell him, verse 31. But we said to him, we are honest men. We are not spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more. And the youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man. Everyone say the man. I love this. Over and over again, Joseph will be referred to as what? The man. Now we laugh, but here's what's so neat biblically, that in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12, in a prophecy about the Messiah who was to come, he is called, behold the man who is named the branch. And then, as Jesus has suffered through six unjust trials, been beaten and scourged by Pilate, he's brought out before the crowd, practically nude, bleeding everywhere. And Pilate says, Behold, the man. And you know what I love about this? Is that God, in all his divine perfection, power, wisdom, omnipotence, left heaven to come to earth to become what? The man. Not too far out of reach. Not so distant that we couldn't have a relationship with him. But to come down to our level. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might be forgiven. So as Joseph is referred to as the man, he is the foreshadow of the man to come, who is Jesus Christ. Then the man, verse 33, the Lord of the country said to us, by this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here. Who's the one that got left? Come on, I need to hear it. Who's the one who got left? Don't forget Simeon, because everyone else forgets Simeon. They leave him there. Don't forget Simeon. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine of your households and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me. So I shall know that you are not spies, but that you are honest men. I will grant your brother to you and you may trade in the land. Here's what I love about what Joseph has done. Has he given a clear plan of reconciliation? He's made it abundantly clear. It's not a mystery. They're not wondering what they need to do in their role. They are called to leave Simeon, to go back to the land of Canaan, to get who? To get Benjamin, the youngest son. And when they return with Benjamin, what will Joseph do? He will return Simeon to them, and they are free to trade in the land, or in other words, to live in the boundaries of Egypt, to have provision given to them, to have the resources that they need to survive as a family and to thrive under Joseph's protection. Joseph has made a clear plan of reconciliation. Verse 35, Then it happened, as they emptied their sacks, that surprisingly, each man's bundle of money was in a sack. And when their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin? All these things are against me. Now, this is tremendously sad in the story. Do you see what Joseph clearly gave them? What did he provide? He provided grain. He provided money, and he provided a clear plan of reconciliation, or at least in their eyes, an opportunity to come and live in the land of Egypt and to prove themselves as honest men. I would say, as a whole, that's a pretty good, successful trip. They got to speak with the person second in command of the country who said, hey, you can come back here. Bring your brother, and everything we have will be offered to you. Is that a good day? And yet... When they find this money in each one of their sacks, what's the automatic thought that comes to their minds? Guilt. Guilt. God is after us. He's against us. Is there anywhere in your own life where you have a sign to God that he is against you? That something is his fault. That if only he would do this, then you would be happy. May I encourage you, identify what that is and come back to the truth of God's character. Because his forgiveness, his grace, and his love precedes even your reconciliation. It's already yours. Unmerited and undeserved. It has been given to you freely. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to think that God is against you or after you. It's actually the opposite. He's for you. He wants to build you to become more and more like his son. As we continue, verse 37 says, Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him, meaning Benjamin, back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, meaning Jacob said to Reuben, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with the sorrow to the grave. There is so much to unpack here. Um, Joseph is testing his brother's character. Joseph's plan of reconciliation tests the character of his brothers. What will they do? Will they leave Simeon to rot in jail? Kind of like they've left Joseph to rot. They've never come looking for him. They've never confessed their sin. Will they humble themselves? Will they ever repent of their sin? Will they return to Egypt? Will their character grow? There is a test in this plan of reconciliation. And Joseph is a master at knowing how and when to employ hard things, but not such hard things that they can't be accomplished. And I want you to think about this in your own life. Um, If you take a little kid maybe four years old, just, just old enough to really kick a soccer ball, and you put the net one foot in front of that kid, 10 out of 10 times, how many times are they going to kick it in the goal? 10 times, even at four years old. But you move that net 12 feet away. Is the ratio going to change? You bet it will. And here's the beauty of why it should be 12 feet away instead of one. Because the only way that child will learn how to grow in their soccer skill is by what? Missing. Struggling a little bit. Not to the point where it's so discouraging that you put it 50 feet away and they can never make it. But just far enough that they realize, I have to get better. I have to make adjustments. The way that I'm doing it isn't working. I also need a coach to come alongside me to help me grow. Do you see what Joseph is doing with his brothers? What God has done for him in the fires of trial. Think about the path that Joseph has taken. At 17, he's traded into slavery. How many people might that have broken? And yet he diligently serves the Lord in Potiphar's house. And in Potiphar's house, he's given command of everything. It says Potiphar only worried about what he needed to eat that day. That was all. Because everything else Joseph took care of. And the same thing happens in the prison. And now the same thing's happening in the king's court where Joseph is in charge of all of Egypt and Pharaoh literally worries about nothing. Who is Joseph's coach? Who raised him up to be a man of character? It was God. And Joseph has vision for his brothers of, guys, it's not just me God wants to do this with. It's who? It's all of you. And I think sometimes we make the mistake of reading God's word and going, well, hey, I'm not a Moses. I'm not a King David. Like that's a special calling. There's some truth to that. That is a special calling. But who does God want to build to become like his son and display the character of the king? It's all of us. Do not discount the significance of your life and the relationship that you have with Jesus because it can impact people that a pastor or a Billy Graham or a Greg Glory just can't. And Joseph has this vision. He has this plan of reconciliation to build his brothers into men of character. And so he does some hard things. He puts Simeon in jail. Now here's what's mind-boggling to me. Uh, anybody ever wonder if like, Simeon was the worst to Joseph? And Joseph's like, I'm going to stick it to one of you. Simeon, come here. Now keep in mind, Joseph's speaking through an interpreter this whole time. He knows Hebrew, but he's not letting his brothers know that he knows. All the power. (laughs) He's speaking Egyptian, and an interpreter is speaking Hebrew, but as the brothers speak Hebrew, Joseph understands everything that they say. And he picks Simeon to put in prison. Now here's the beauty of how we know the heart behind what Joseph is doing. If he had an arrogant heart, or if this was spiteful or vengeful, would God have honored that? Absolutely not. But instead, Joseph knows this plan of reconciliation will have to cost something. And there's going to be some hard things. And I'm going to put Simeon in prison. I doubt Simeon was treated poorly, but nevertheless, he's put in prison because Joseph wants to see you abandon one of your brothers once. Have you changed? Is your character different? Will you return? I'm giving you a clear path. Will you come back for him? That will help me see that you are honest men. Do you see the brilliance in his plan of reconciliation? Now we jump forward into the New Testament. God opened the Red Sea for Israel to walk through as they escaped slavery. And within 24 hours, what happens? The people are complaining. And so God brings fire down on Mount Sinai and provides the Ten Commandments. And what happens? They're having orgies and worshiping a golden calf. And over and over and over, the pattern continues. And I wish we could say, how many of you have ever heard or said in your own mind or out loud, If God were real, why doesn't he just show himself to everybody? Because he did over and over again. And how did people respond? Just went back to their sinful ways. Signs and wonders, a whale jumping, a star shooting, it would never be enough. But in his plan of reconciliation, to take the Son of God from heaven and to bring him to earth fully man, fully God, to walk among us, to understand the pain, the suffering, the sorrows, to lose a dad at a young age, to experience scrapes and broken bones and bruises and mocking, financial hardship and struggles like we do. Do you see the depths of God's plan of reconciliation and how much he loves you? That he would send his only son to come to our level To rescue and redeem us, Joseph is willing to start somewhere with his brothers in order to lead them to where they need to be. And Christ is the same way. We see this test of character, or this process of growing our character, in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus begins this famous Sermon on the Mount with these verses. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does poor in spirit mean? It means humble. It means not prideful going, I'm amazing, so I guess I'll be on your team, God. Or prideful going, I don't need a Savior because I am my own Savior. Or the money I've made is my Savior. Or my giftings or my beauty or whatever it is is my Savior. Poor in spirit means I'm humble to go, oh, my life is sinful. I'm a wicked person. And next Jesus teaches, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Mourn over what? Mourn over their sinfulness. And Jesus promises if you mourn over your sin, which means when you confess your sin, you will be comforted. 1 John 1.9 says, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Which means he keeps no record of wrongs against you, which means he separates your sin as far as the East is from the West, which means he even forgets your sin. Not because God is forgetful, but that's the type of relationship he lives with you. As husband and wife, as parent to children, as friend to friend, coworker to coworker, we can often forgive people, but forgetting the things that they've done to us is something else, isn't it? And yet, God keeps no record of wrongs against you. For those who mourn over their sin, they will be comforted. They will be comforted through the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses them from all unrighteousness. This is the process of reconciliation. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is not weakness, meekness is strength under control. Notice Joseph's brothers. There are 10 of them, they are bigger, they are older. And they pick on Joseph to the point of selling him for a little bit of money into slavery. They were not what? They were not meek. They used their authority for wickedness. But look at Joseph. He is second in command of the known world. And what is he doing with his power? Literally feeding people so they don't starve to death. What a picture of Jesus Christ. All that authority... All that power, creator of the universe. And what does he do with it? He lays it down on your behalf and my behalf so that we can be redeemed and rescued. So that we can turn around and display the same character to even those who have wronged us in our life. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. God gives us a new heart instead of wanting to fill ourselves with the things of this world, with the things that only please our flesh, with a more comfortable life, we begin to hunger and thirst after God's word because we know it's true and there's nowhere else to go but him. We continue. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. What a display by Joseph. He knows he's been given mercy by God and so he gives mercy to those that we would call undeserving in his brother's. Joseph is trying to build this in his own family. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Interesting to me that the brothers, first thing that they tell Joseph is, no, we are honest men. Honest men simply means we're pure in heart. And Joseph goes, we'll see. Are you humble, poor in spirit? Do you mourn over your sin? Which is interesting because if you go back in 42 in Hebrew, not knowing that Joseph can understand them, they talk among themselves and they go, don't you remember the look of our brother as we sold him into slavery, as he pleaded with us? We should have never done that. And what is Joseph's response? What's he have to do? He has to leave the throne room because he's what? He's weeping. Because what does he see in his brother's? remorse. They're genuinely sorry. But they don't think that that can be undone, that Joseph is gone. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Without going into great detail, we've talked about how there is a difference between a peacemaker and a peacekeeper. Peacekeepers are simply people who appease others and make compromises for the purpose of keeping the status quo. Peacemakers do hard things to keep what? Peace. And sometimes a peacemaker has to bring war against sin. Joseph does a hard thing. He keeps Simeon in prison. That's a hard thing for the brothers. He knows that this is going to impact his father. But he also knows without a nice carrot, they're not coming back. And so he employs an act of peacemaking. Then finally, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven This is the picture of Joseph persecuted for righteousness sake. He has not done anything wrong. Doesn't mean he wasn't a sinner like us. Just means in those circumstances, being wrongfully accused of rape, um, being sold into slavery. Joseph did nothing wrong. He was persecuted because he was an upright man. And he is just a small picture of Jesus Christ, our savior, accused of being a criminal when he was perfect. In every way. The man. The only one who could redeem us. This is our process of reconciliation. The only way you come to Christ is if you're first what? Humble. You have to have a humble heart. You must be poor in spirit. You can't come to Christ unless you mourn over your what? To go, God, I'm a sinner. Not like, hey, I made that mistake one time. I error sometimes. No, I'm a sinful individual. And when those two things happen, God begins to do a transforming work in our heart. And the only way we become humble, and the only way that we become mourning over our own sin, is because what precedes reconciliation? Forgiveness grace and love and that is all credit to god nothing for us all credit to him now we also see in this passage jacob's response reuben makes this weird plea he goes hey kill my two sons if i don't come back um good plan or bad plan not really a good plan but at least reuben's trying to do what He's like, hey, dad, we got to go back because Simeon's in prison. Who do we forget about? (laughs) It's the Alamo. It's Simeon. We forget about Simeon. Simeon's in prison. And this whole time, they're having this conversation trying to figure out if they're going to go back and bring Benjamin. Simeon's in prison. And Jacob goes, there is no way I'm sending Benjamin with you. Benjamin is my life. Benjamin brings me joy. Benjamin's from my favorite wife, Rachel. Benjamin's my new favorite son. He's my new Joseph. And we go, Jacob, what are you doing? Didn't you see the pain that this brought on your family 20 years ago? When you put a coat of many colors on one of your sons and lifted him up above all the others? And Jacob's doing what? The same thing all over again. And you know what I love? God's plan of reconciliation is patient. Because I make the same boneheaded mistakes over and over again too. And I'm sure some of you do as well. And God is patient in his plan of reconciliation. Now notice Jacob's response. He says, all these things are against me. And then in verse 38, he says, my son shall not go down with you. For his brother is dead. He is left alone. If any calamity shall befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. There are two types of leadership being displayed here. The first one is the type that Jacob is displaying. It's inwardly focused, which means he's in self-preservation mode. He claims, oh, I don't want Benjamin to go because something might happen to him. Who is Jacob really about here? He's about himself. Because his life has been wrapped up in who? Benjamin. To please himself. And it's so interesting to me. It is not wrong to love your children fiercely, but the moment that child takes the place of where Christ's relationship should be, oh, we have a problem. Or a spouse, or a job, or finances, or talents and giftings, or hopes and dreams. The moment anything takes the place where Christ is supposed to be. We start living in self-preservation mode. And self-preservation mode is small kingdom mindedness. Jacob can only think about who? Really himself. Just Jacob. Now remember, he's the patriarch of Israel. This just isn't any family in the Bible. It's kind of a big deal because who's supposed to come from the line of Israel? the Messiah, Jesus. And Jacob is so narrow-minded because of the guilt and because he's trying to cling to the things of this world, Benjamin, that he has this small kingdom mindset and he forgets his role and responsibility as a leader. Fathers, husbands, wives, mothers, managers, owners, you have been given great positions. Are you leading in self-preservation mode? And if you are, what is it that you're holding on to too tightly in this world that God wants to bring under the lordship of Jesus Christ instead of having it over the lordship of Jesus Christ? The second type of leadership, which is displayed by Joseph, is outwardly focused. He's other-centered. He has a big kingdom mindset. Joseph isn't concerned about his position in Egypt or his two sons or his wife alone. He's looking at the known world going, God, you've given me an opportunity to steward others. Help me to nourish them, to feed them, to be a man of upstanding character and integrity. Help me manage this grain so that we can get through this famine and that people are able to be fed. He's other-centered, which makes him big kingdom-minded. Joseph displays this, but the one who models it best is Jesus, who once again came to earth fully man, fully God, and his whole purpose was not to be served, but to what? To be a servant of all, to lay his life down, to take the sins of many upon his shoulders, and to endure the wrath of God reserved for us, So that we might be saved. Outwardly focused, other centered, big kingdom mindset. How are you leading in the areas where God has given you stewardship and responsibility? How are you using the roles that God has called you to? You still with me? Chapter 43. Now the famine was severe in the land and it came to pass when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought back from Egypt that their father said to them, go back, from e- go back buy us a little food. But Judah spoke to him saying, the man solemnly warned us saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And if you send your brother with us, we will go down and buy food, said Judah. But if you will not send him, we will not go down for the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Isn't it interesting? Jacob shut the door on the conversation of even thinking about going back to Egypt with Benjamin. Until what? They got hungry again. There was no grain left. And church family, I want to encourage you. Famine often brings us to the feet of Jesus, doesn't it? I wish that wasn't true in my life. I wish I learned when things were good. I wish my character grew when I could sit in comfort. But the reality is, is those desert seasons, those times of famine, when we are in desperate need and we know we have no strength or power to deliver whatever it is, we have an option to run to the feet of Jesus. And look at what's happened again. They have no food. And Jacob goes, go buy us some food. And Judah goes, no point. Unless you give us Benjamin, because the only place that we can go is the foot of the man. The only place that we can find bread to save our lives is the foot of the man. Do you see Christ in this? It's incredible. Judas speaks practically. I love this because in John chapter 6, there's this, it's it's a very long chapter. I encourage you to read it maybe this week. But Jesus has this greater group of disciples, probably hundreds. And they've been following him. He's been performing miracles. He's grown in popularity. There's a lot of people that want to be on Jesus' team. And then he gives some hard teaching. He says, you have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood if you want to be saved. And people are like, that's weird. That's gross. No, thank you. Not interested. And they leave. And somewhat understandably, they didn't have the discernment to understand what he was saying. But then Jesus looks at the 12 apostles And this is what he says. Are you also going to leave? And Simon Peter, who's usually responsible for speaking for the group, (laughs) says, Lord, to whom else would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe. We know you are the Holy One of God. As followers of Christ, even we can get distracted trying to do things in our own strength, in our own talent, in our own ways. And yet, may I encourage you that if you find yourself in a season of famine, where do you get to go? To the feet of Jesus. Because there you will find life. And he has bread abundantly. Spiritual nourishment abundantly. Character abundantly. Endurance abundantly. Faith abundantly. There is nothing that he cannot provide. But oftentimes, we refuse to come to the feet of Jesus. Verse 6, chapter 43. And Israel, meaning Jacob, said, Why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you still had another brother? Jacob, what's he doing right now? He's blaming. Why did you tell him about Benjamin? Because he asked if I had other siblings. Look at Judah's response, verse 7. But they said, The man asked us pointedly about ourselves and about our family saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told him according to these words. Could we possibly have known that he would say, bring your brother down? Makes sense, right? Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the lad with me, and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you, and also our little ones. We get a sense of the desperation here, don't we? They're literally going to starve to death if they don't get their rear ends up to Egypt and get grain. This is serious. And Jacob is wallowing in self-pity because he's clinging to the things of this world. And he's not putting his faith and trust in God. And Judah is stepping up to the plate. We see the character of Joseph's brothers growing before our eyes. Listen, I will be surety for him. I'll take responsibility. I'll take him under my wing. I want to oversee my little brother. And if you remember, Judah was the one who suggested what? That they sell Joseph for money. Is he growing? You bet he is. Is the plan of reconciliation working? Slowly, but it's working. Verse 10. If we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned the second time. Verse 11, and their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man. A little balm, a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Uh, I love Jacob. He's up to his old ways. Uh, Do you remember another time where he gave a bunch of gifts to somebody? hey, Esau, here's 5,000 camels, 10,000 rams. And Esau's like, dude, I'm filthy rich. I don't need any of this. And Jacob's like, yeah, you do. (laughs) It's our own petty ways of trying to be like, Jesus, look, I, I did this for you. And he's like, you don't need, I don't need anything from you. I give you forgiveness and grace and love. It's yours. It's free. Take it. I want you to so I can build you. And here's something interesting about Jacob. He thinks all these things are against him. He's still convinced that God is after him. The brothers have this negative outlook. But can I encourage you that God's plan of reconciliation is always. Everyone say always. Always. It's always for your good. It's always for your good. Think about this. Joseph gets sold into slavery. God, how is this for my good? I know you can't see it. Trust me. Joseph gets thrown into prison for being falsely accused. God, how is this for my good? Trust me, it's for your good. God then raises Joseph to power. And it's not only for his good, but for who else's good? The world. Not exaggerating. The world. What do you mean God killed his own son? Because it was for your good. Because his plan of reconciliation is always for your good. As you seek to reconcile relationships in your own life, apply wisdom. Look at those four things we talked about at the beginning. Making sure that you're other-centered, slow to speak, quick to listen. Realistic expectations. These are all super important. But know that as you seek to reconcile... Reconciliation is always for your good and for the good of others. Jacob willingly but reluctantly gives up Benjamin, verse 13, excuse me, verse 12. Take double your money in your hand because you're honest men. And take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother also, meaning Benjamin, and arise and go back to the man. And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man. That he may release you. Excuse me, that he may release your other brother, Benjamin. If I am bereaved or if I lose them, then I lose them. Profound words by Jacob, which I'm sure he didn't understand the weight of what he said in verse 14. And may God Almighty give you mercy. Before the man. Church family. You've been given mercy. Before who? The man. Who is Jesus Christ your savior. Abandon your life. To the mercy of the man Jesus. The savior of the world. Abandon your fears. Take them to him. Abandon the things that you cling to. The things that control you. The substances that are irking you. Abandon your life to the mercy of the man. Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This story is all about Jesus. We're going to fly through these really quick. Joseph, a prophetic prefigure of King Jesus. How many of you remember how many we're up to? 17. 17. We're going to add an 18. So here we go. Number one, the father sends his beloved son to the tribe of Israel on a mission of love. Number two... Rejected because of his testimony to his own brethren. Number three, his tunic taken by the captors. Number four, beaten and left for dead. I get goosebumps still reading these. Sold to the Gentiles for a few pieces of silver. Number six, falsely accused and arrested. Number seven, preached to the spirits in prison. Number eight, the savior of the world. Number nine, Began his public ministry at 30 years of age. Number 10, an alleged criminal instantly raised to power and seated at the right hand of authority. Number 11, given a name that means God speaks and saves lives, his Egyptian name. Number 12, every knee must bow. Number 13, espoused to a Gentile bride, Joseph took an Egyptian woman as a bride. Number 14, His children are God has made me forget and God has caused me to be fruitful. The two names of his sons. Number 15, he is Lord of the present harvest age, the seven years of plenty. Number 16, he is Lord of the coming seven-year tribulation, the seven years of great famine. Number 17, Israel is blind, unable to recognize the Savior King who is their own brother. And from today's passage, number 18, he is the bread of life. Give in to Israel and the world for salvation. Wow! From before the world was founded, God planned this to point you to Jesus Christ over and over again. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.